This is the Widescreen Podcast, show number 310. My voice sounds a little bit weird. Uh, I'm okay, honestly. But yes, this is the show for January, seeing as how I've reduced myself to one show a month, which I don't like. I don't like. But uh, full plate. Maybe. Maybe someday. When I get to the point where I don't need a second job, I can get the show going on a regular basis, other than once a month. But anyway, this is our CES Roundup show. Um, not, there are a couple of cool things. We've unfortunately reached a point when it comes to home theater where there ain't a whole hell of a lot new that, that, that could be considered to be revolutionary. There are a, cool, a couple of cool things. LG has a couple of really neat things out there that I don't know that we'll see them in our regular homes. Uh, at this point, they're probably going to be for those with a lot more money than most of us do. But they're still cool, and they might come down here eventually. The problem is, when it comes to TVs, we, we've kind of reached a saturation point. I mean, TVs can only be so big, not because they can't manufacture them bigger, but because people's walls will only support TVs of a certain size. If your wall only has enough room for a 65-inch TV, you're not going to get a 75-inch TV. And this is something that TV manufacturers acknowledged quite, you know, a couple of years ago. So yeah, there are a lot of 55-inch, 65-inch, 75-inch TVs. They're still hampered by the fact that there's not a whole hell of a lot of 4K content relative to Blu-ray and DVD. DVD is still outselling both Blu-ray and HD, sorry, yeah, Ultra HD Blu-ray combined. So people are still being value conscious with 480p and 480i media. So unfortunately, like you'll find out when I go over all the stuff, what you're seeing at CES is simply trying to improve what's currently there, but again, with the exception of a couple of cool ideas that LG has, but mostly you'll see that it, it, it's brightness that is currently the issue, uh, maybe having some stuff already loaded into the TV. Well, you, you know my view on smart TVs and having software installed in the TV. I'm not a fan, but we'll go over all of that. So there's that. Um... Not that this really has anything to do with the podcast, but by the time you hear this, I'll have survived yet another orbit around our local star. Yep, getting older, getting older. One year closer to death. But, you know, at the, at the same time, I'm... Remember that, that line in Star Trek Generations where Picard said that he's recently become aware that he has fewer years ahead of him than he has behind? Yeah, I've... I've yeah, I understand that. I understand that more and more every year, and it sucks. But at the same time, I do also subscribe to the notion of don't begrudge getting old. It is a privilege denied to many. And yeah, it's like I'm at that point now where yeah, I still use Facebook because I'm an old fart. I get it. But it's like every year now for the past five years, someone who I have graduated with or their spouse has died. I'm seeing it more and more regularly, and boy, does that suck. So, yeah, don't begrudge getting old. Uh, I mean, I'm still here. I'm still podcasting. I'm still streaming. I'm still building Warframe props. In a lot of ways, I'm having more fun now than I had 10 years ago. And as long as I stay physically and mentally healthy, I'm fine. Can't stop the inevitable, so I'm going to try my best not to worry about it. And speaking of inevitable, it is inevitable that I get this podcast going. Awful segue. Absolutely awful segue. I hate segues. <laughs> God, I hate... Okay, anyway. Anyway. I mentioned in the last podcast that uh, Sony was getting a lot of flack because 
everything from Discovery Channel, whether you purchased it or not, was disappearing off of the PlayStation Network. So uh, that got Sony in a lot of internet trouble. People were not happy with that. But if you have purchased any Discovery content from the PlayStation Store, and you realize, wait a minute, we're in January, and it's still there. That's because Sony got so much flack for saying, hey, we're getting rid of Discovery, and the whole thing about how you don't own content that you quote-unquote buy if you don't actually own a physical copy of it. Sony and Discovery went and uh, they made updated licensing agreements. Basically, Sony decided, you know, we're getting so much pushback, we better just go and pay whatever Discovery wants. So, due to updated licensing arrangements, the Discovery content removal planned for December, 20, December 31st, 2023 is no longer occurring. We appreciate your ongoing support and feedback, which roughly translates to you guys gave us so much crap that you backed us into a wall and fine, we're going to pay Discovery the licensing fees that we should have done in the first place. Uh, just remember, if you don't own a disc in your hand, you don't own anything. You simply have a perpetual lease or rental license. Oh, and speaking of owning, it actually has come to my attention that there are a couple of Tom and Jerry DVD collections that I don't have, and they have been ordered. They're on the way, and those will absolutely get added to my Plex server. I also, re oh, speaking of Christmas, my wife got me the uh, director's edition of Star Trek II on Blu-ray. She also got me the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture on Blu-ray. And she also got me a movie, I, I have not heard of this one, but a lot of people were recommending this. And it's called Cats Don't Dance. And this is one of those reasons why I love the Warner Archive collection, because that's how this was made available. I, I really wish more studios followed Warner Brothers when it comes to, to proper archiving of older material. But this movie is an animation starring Scott Bakula and Jasmine Guy. Songs are by Randy Newman. And it actually was choreographed. This is the last movie that really had anything to do with the late Gene Kelly. And the whole movie is meant to be just a, a, a throwback to the days of the great you know, 1950s, 1960s musicals. So it's actually a lot of people who have seen it said that they like it, but uh, Warner Brothers apparently gave it like zero marketing when it came out. So it was a complete bomb at the box office. No wonder we haven't heard of it. So I haven't had a chance to watch it, but well, I've skipped through a couple of scenes and it actually does. It feels a lot like Tom and Jerry. You know, Tom and Jerry meets the old big screen musicals. So yeah, movie-wise, it was a uh, it was a good Christmas. And of course, all of those discs have been ripped and thrown up to my Plex server, and then the discs went up on the shelf for safekeeping. So yeah, I own them. And speaking of discs, if you needed even more proof that that uh, Walmart is trying to take over from Best Buy, things out Best Buy no longer sells physical media. Well, okay, no longer sells DVDs and Blu-rays. They still sell video games. Walmart has taken no time in taking over the whole thing with Steelbooks. So now, the, one of the first things that uh, Walmart is going to be selling is the Creepshow Steelbook. Uh, that's going to be coming out exclusively at Walmart on February 27th. So it's going to be interesting to see how this turns out. I'm still curious to see how or if discs like that will come back. They certainly won't come back to what they were. But with more and more streaming services removing stuff, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, keep in mind, like uh, Disney Plus 
Uh, Loki, the complete first season, has been made available on disc back in September. WandaVision back in November. Just last month, The Mandalorian, uh, the first and second seasons have been made available on disc. Paramount has been putting all of the Star Trek series on disc. There's some, some Star Trek news later on, too. But I mean, I'm not naive. It'll never be what it was before. But I'm curious as to where the tipping point is going to be when people start to really get aggravated by the fact that something that they want to see is no longer available on any of the streaming services because these companies want to avoid having to pay residuals. And as a result, people start hunting for DVDs or Blu-rays to say, hey, you know, if you guys aren't going to stream it, then fine, I'll buy the damn thing. This is assuming that they don't go to piracy. Oh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So it's time to talk the Consumer Electronics Show, CES. Uh, again, there, there are some cool things. LG has some cool things. But I think what you're going to find now is we've reached that point where it's simply improvement on what currently exists. And what amazing new technologies you're going to see out there probably are not going to be at consumer level for quite some time, maybe never. And that's not because it's not, it's not something that we'd want. But, well... It, it's will the cost justify the purchase will the coolness factor justify the purchase but really the only improvements that they can do right now uh is, is software that's built in brightness and enhancing whatever technologies already exist i mean 8k has 8k is out there but there's practically no 8k content i mean hell they can't even get ultra hd blu-rays to beat blu-ray and not every program is available in 4K for streaming, let alone 8K. So yeah, I mean, unless there's some kind of major advance in TV technology, from year by year, by year it's probably going to be variations on a theme. So anyway, if you're in the Google ecosystem like I am, Chromecast functionality is coming to LG Smart TVs this year. I would still advocate just buying your own Chromecast. That way you don't have to worry about upgrading it, you know, or you don't have to worry about software upgrades you just you want a better chromecast you go out and buy another one so the big deal on this one is that lg tvs are pretty much the most popular tvs in the world right now but their web os platform has not supported chromecast to date but starting with the 2024 model year lg tvs will also support chromecast without you actually having to have a separate chromecast dongle that came out kind of weird i think my nose is getting stuffed now, nothing was mentioned when, uh, if at all, this functionality will come to older TV models because it is basically a software upgrade. But Google has reported that LG TVs will also be able to control other products through the Google Home app directly from the TV itself. So if you have other Google products that are compatible with Google Home, you will be able to control them through your LG TV. Now, the one thing that LG has over the competition is their wireless technology, uh, right now, they are the only company that has a truly wireless TV offering. And what I mean by wireless is everything. The HDMI signal and so forth is sent wirelessly. The only cable that comes from the TV is for power. So last year, they had their M3 line. This year, for 2024, they'll have their M4 line. It's going to come in 97, 83, and 77-inch sizes. But they also have added a new 65-inch model, which hopefully will make it will make this, this technology more available for people and again as i mentioned one of the really cool things about these tvs is that you don't need to have a whole bunch of wires going down the wall you don't have to do anything like that everything is transmitted wirelessly so the only wire on the tv is for power 
Now, if you don't need wireless, uh, but you want a higher-end TV, they're, they're coming out with their new G4 series. And, of course, they this is CES. If there's one thing you've learned from following CES throughout the years, very few places actually announce pricing or availability. This is just to show it to people and, and you know, make people aware of it. So, of course, LG has not announced pricing on this new M4 line, but the most affordable version of the M3 is $5,000 for the 77-inch model, which is $1,200, sorry, $1,200 more expensive than the same size of their G3 line. So, this new 65-inch model is obviously going to be less expensive, well, less expensive than uh, the 77-inch model, but who knows what that's actually going to be. Probably close to about 4000 but let's face it, not many people need wireless. It's not that big of a deal. So unless the price comes down even farther, it's probably not going to catch on as much as LG might like it to do. And honestly, I don't understand why they're keeping it so such a premium. We all own wireless devices, whether it's Bluetooth headphones or, you know, for us gamers, some of us have wireless controllers. We've all got Wi-Fi in our house. This just feels like one of those things that... Why are they holding on to it? What's so special about this technology that they're keeping it for premium pricing? I don't get it, but whatever. That shows why I'm not in marketing. Uh, so the one thing that was introduced at CES that was a little bit of a head turner is that LG now has a transparent OLED TV that can also transform into, you want to call it a screensaver, even though you don't need to save the screen. Now, transparent OLEDs have been around for a while, uh, but they've mostly been commercial. You know, we I talked about them last year, where they had a transparent TV that stuck to their window. Except now, LG is selling this technology for consumers in the home. So, well, <laughs> for rich people's homes, maybe. So, their 77-inch transparent TV is called the OLED T, or OLED. I don't know, 50-50 on that one. But the idea is that when the background is turned off, you could see right through it to the wall that's behind it. And basically, it makes images look like they're floating on glass. So some of the animations that they had was a school of fish, a field of stars, other things like that. But then at the press of a button, a sheet of black film rises from below, which obscures the wall and turns it into a regular TV screen. So this, too, uses the uh, wireless technology for, that the M4 series had. Uh, the only cord is is for power, so it, it's you know, that's a nice feature, obviously. But because it's a larger si a larger size screen at seventy seven inches, plus it's wireless, yeah. I mean, LG said that future versions could go bigger or smaller depending on feedback, but I'm sure that the feedback is going to be, yikes, that's expensive. So of course, CES, there's been no pricing set, but uh, we'll we'll see what happens with that. And finally, in the LG category. They're using their transparent OLED display on something called their Duke Box. No, not Jukebox. It's a Duke Box. I have no idea why. Now, this actually comes from LG Labs, not LG proper. So at this point, it's considered to be experimental. Uh, so it's not clear if this is something that they're going to bring to market or if they just want to show off what can be done with their transparent OLED screen. But the Duke Box is actually a speaker. So it has front-facing front speakers at the bottom. Uh, some 360-degree speakers at the top. It actually has a tube-based amplifier, but the front of it is one of their transparent OLED screens. So you can have it stay completely transparent so that you can see the nice glow of the tubes behind it, 
or you could have it be something like a a fireplace image that goes to the sound of the music that you're playing. Or you can, of course, make the panel completely opaque and use it to watch movies or TV shows. So again, because this is experimental, there's no word on the, the, the type of audio system that it is, how powerful it is, connectivity, streaming capabilities, that sort of thing. It's just one of those, uh, you know, just like a concept car, except for audio gear. But I will admit, it is kind of cool to look at. However, with wireless technology, plus tube, plus OLED screen, if it ever does come out, but that's, that's going to be expensive. Moving off of LG, we go to Samsung, where they have introduced the world's first wireless 8K projector. Again, good. good. I mean, there's not a whole lot of 8K content out there. So this is an ultra-short throw projector, and this, this is the kind that you can just set right in front of a wall, and it will beam it up against the wall. And, of course, they will have other models that are, are just just 4K, just 4K. So all of them will feature the Smart Hub built in for streaming. Uh, they are going to also include the Samsung Gaming Hub in their 2024 lineup, which will offer cloud-based access to uh, game titles on Xbox, uh, NVIDIA GeForce Now, and Utomic. I've never heard of that one, but I'm assuming that it's just another yet another streaming service. And yeah, that's the kind where you don't actually have the game. You stream the game from a remote server, so hope you have a good internet connection. But it says that when the projection is turned off, these new models can also be used as smart speakers for music streaming, uh, and they come with Light Warp, which is a projection mapping technology that lets you turn any object in a room into an interactive touchscreen display. Okay, I want to see that. That looks cool. So they introduced various models. The Premiere 8K uh, has built-in 822 surround sound. Uh, Dolby Atmos, the Premiere 5 is designed to be portable. That can do a 100-inch image when it's situated 17 inches from a wall. The Premiere 7 and Premiere 9 have increased brightness over last year's models. And of course, because there really is no 8K content, although supposedly YouTube has some, uh, the Premiere 8K for the most part will be upscaling 4K or lower resolution content to 8K. That's kind of a duh. One other thing that Samsung did show uh, is something that I think a lot of people might actually be interested in, especially if it can come down to a more consumer level. But their third-generation QD OLED TV, this model is the S95D, comes with a glare-free display that the company claims will eliminate any noticeable reflections. So, I mean, this could prevent, uh, like, you know, just glare off of a TV when you've got a nice, bright, sunny day outside. So, I mean, anti-reflective coatings are nothing new. Other TVs have it. But Samsung claims that there will be no negative impacts on any viewing angle or color distortion, so that no matter where you have the TV placed, regardless of the size of the window that it might be next to, you should be able to get a glare-free experience. So they also claim that this TV has the brightest OLED screen from Samsung yet, and the S95D is available in sizes up to 77 inches, although they don't say what the minimum is. So according to this, the S95D is under 11 millimeters thin. They might as well just say a centimeter. <laughs> and it comes with Samsung's One Connect box, so you can plug your streaming devices and gaming consoles into that. And it runs everything up to the TV with a single cable. So that's, that's, that's a cool alternative if you can't get LG's wireless put it into a box, and then just have one cable go to the TV. So, of course, there are no prices or anything like that listed because it's CES. 
But if you are having a problem with a TV in a you know an area with a lot of light and a lot of glare, this might be something to look at depending on what the cost is going to be. I've already said that right now we're at a point in TV manufacturing that they can only go so far. They can only do so much unless we have some brand new revolution in in TV manufacturing and and what you can do with TVs. So they can only keep enhancing what they've got at this point. And Hisense has decided to go all out on brightness. So there are two ways to measure brightness. One is through lumens, and the other one is is called nits. I've talked about nits before. The brightness that comes off of a TV is measured in nits. Uh, so basically the difference is, let's say you've got a projector and a screen that the projector is, is showing the, the video on. The brightness of the bulb is measured in lumens, but the brightness that's reflected off the screen is measured in nits because nits covers brightness over a certain area, whereas lumens is just the brightness of the source material, the source object. So on average, most TV, again, this is an average that most TVs put out a brightness of about 450 nits. If you want to be able to watch something, say, in broad daylight, like you know, a laptop monitor or something like that, you would need to have a screen of at least 1,000 or 1,500 nits to be able to see it in daylight because it would be that much brighter. Hisense has decided that for whatever reason, I get, well, just for bragging rights, who am I kidding? They decided that they are now coming out with two TVs that are not only huge at 110 inches, they're going to have brightness, a brightness level of 10,000 nits. So considering that the average TV is about 450 to 600 nits, you are now talking 10,000. So that's for the 110-inch model, which obviously is not going to be in most people's houses. They're also coming out with a 98-inch model, which, of course, is still not going to end up in most people's houses. That's going to have a brightness of 5,000 nits, which is still 10 times brighter than the average TV. The 110-inch model is also supposedly going to be one of the few TVs to claim almost 100% coverage of the what's called BT2020 color space, which basically means it can produce almost every color possible, which might or might not be an issue because the way that most media sources are made does not take advantage of that full color space anyway. And and uh, Hisense also came out with their Canvas TV, which is uh, supposed to be a competitor to Samsung's Frame TV, which we have discussed in previous years, and LG's Gallery Series, which is basically the same thing. And as usual, no prices, nothing. All they're saying is that they'll be available later this year, and uh yeah, ten ten thousand nits. Y'all are gonna need your sunglasses to watch that one. Uh some other TV announcements. Roku is now stepping into what's considered to be premium TV territory with its new Pro series, which is going to feature mini LED backlighting. But this is actually going to be their own line of TVs, not ones that are made with partners like TCL and so forth. So whereas most Roku TVs end up some being somewhere between hundred and fifty and a thousand dollars. This new model, which is called the Pro Series, they're going to come in at 55, 65, and 75-inch models, and they're going to top out at $1,500, which still, for a TV, uh, I mean, it's crazy. I get emails regularly from places like Micro Center and Best Buy and so forth, and seeing Ultra HD TVs for $150, bucks, i am just, <laughs> jeez, sorry, you're not getting rid of my Sony Bravia 3D TV. Nope. But if you like the uh, if you like the Roku ecosystem, 
and you're looking for a new TV, these are possibly going to be an option for you. And Roku says that these new Pro TV, Pro Series TVs will arrive sometime in the spring of this year. Speaking of TCL, they are launching a new lineup of TVs for 2024, most of which are powered by Google TV, and include a massive 115-inch set. So this monster is going to use mini-LED technology and is going to have 20,000 dimming zones, and it's supposedly going to have built-in 6.2.2 speakers. I don't know how you're going to have subwoofers built into a TV, but there you are. They're also going to be refreshing their entire Q class with brighter panels, better local dimming, and sizes ranging anywhere from 50 to 85 inches. The next step up is going to be their QM7 line. It's going to have 2400 nits of brightness, IMAX certification, 120 hertz refresh rate, and sizes between 55 and 98 inches. Prices, obviously, they're, they're not going to tell you prices at CES, come on. But they said that Google TV will remain part of the lineup, although they haven't said which models, seeing as how TCL also sells Roku sets. And of course, what would CES be without some of the most absurd, ridiculously priced items that you could possibly see regarding home theater? One of them is uh, from a company called Macintosh, which apparently is very big in high-end audio equipment. Uh, they announced their MC2.1KW mm, monoblock power amplifier. This is a two-channel. This is a stereo amplifier. So for those who suffer from FOMO, which is, of course, fear of missing out, the first 75 pairs of these amplifiers sold in 2024 in each country where their products are sold will feature special anniversary badging. Now, I mean, the article that talks about this either is just a straight press release from the company or they are kissing Macintosh's ass something fierce. Listen to this. The, K the, <clears throat> the MC2.1KW monoblock power amplifier is not just a sonic powerhouse, but also a visual masterpiece. Its stainless steel chassis, polished to a gleaming mirrored finish, and impeccable metal casework create a luxurious and timeless design. The amplifier features black glass front panels, illuminated logos, rotary knobs, aluminum handles, and a responsive blue watt meter, making it a true work of art. Oh, God. It's, it's just the pandering. The pandering. It just... <laughs> this, this... You know, I get, I get a little bit of flack from people because of the phrase that I use for things like this. This is for people with more money than sense. So yeah, I mean, keep in mind, this is a stereo amplifier, and this puppy is going to cost $50,000. But after all, it, it, is a, it is a true work of art. <laughs> but probably the biggest one that was like, oh, oh, you've, you've got to be kidding me. Italian luxury speaker manufacturer Sonus Faber, I hope I pronounced that one properly, has uh, made a statement, they say, with the launch of their Suprema speaker system. This is once again a stereo speaker setup with two main speaker columns, subwoofers, and an electronic crossover. Now, uh, this should come as no surprise that this comes from the exact same website that published the previous one. Listen to this. The choice of materials for the Suprema loudspeaker system is a testament to Sonus Faber's commitment to excellence. Carbon fiber was selected for its durability, while wood was chosen for its harmonic qualities. 
The side panels of the main columns feature multi-layer wood, creating an illusion of wings through a unique 3D blending shape. The system also incorporates solid aluminum CNC milled for its static properties. <laughs> the crossover filters partially visible on the sides of the main column have been meticulously designed to achieve a perfect tonal balance and impeccable timing, resulting in a captivating three-dimensional soundstage. All phase cutting and control circuits are 100% analog, emphasizing the system's commitment to purity and precision. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, kind of. Anyway, so uh, yeah, so this nonsense comes in two versions. One is the Suprema 2.1, priced at $680,000. And the Suprema 2.2 is simply a little more than that, $750,000. Uh, and, you know, this has nothing to do with jealousy because I am a very practical kind of person. I might splurge a little bit here and there, but at least I have the confidence in knowing that if I ever struck it big on the lottery, I would never, ever, ever, ever pay for something like this. That $750,000 could feed a hell of a lot of people. Or it could put musical instruments into the hands of thousands of kids. Or it could go to a bunch of homeless shelters and food banks and so forth to help people who actually can use it more than some schmuck who thinks he's hot stuff because he can afford a $750,000 pair of stereo speakers. Oh, anyway. <laughs> so now that we're in a new year, it's time to look back and take a look at the box office numbers from last year. And, I mean, I don't want to be an arrogant jerk. <laughs> I, I always knew deep down that the box office would come back, maybe not to the way it was before the pandemic, but I knew it would come back. You know, and all those people who were like, oh, the movie theater is dead because people are going to want to watch, just watch it from their homes now and blah, 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 blah. I always knew they were. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure there are such people who listen to my podcast, so I don't want to be too offensive, but I kind of would like to say I told you so, at least for the most part. The 2023 U.S. box office has crossed the $9 billion mark. Now, granted, this is in no small part to Barbenheimer, as well as the Super, Mar Super, Super Mario Brothers movie. So, in total, Universal came out on top with Super Mario Brothers movie bringing in about $575 million. This is domestic. Uh, Oppenheimer at $326, Fast X at $150, and Five Nights at Freddy's coming in at $137. Disney actually took second place this time around. They came in at $1.89 billion. Warner Brothers got $1.4 billion, with, of course, Barbie coming in as Warner Brothers' highest-grossing movie ever. That came in at six hundred. So out of the $1.4 billion, Barbie alone brought in $636 million. Now, this still does not compare to the 2019, which is uh, obviously right before the pandemic hit. That was $11.4 billion, but nonetheless, $9 billion is certainly nothing to sneeze at, and that's up significantly from the $7.3 billion that was 2022's box office numbers. So in total, that's about a 23% box office increase domestically from 2022 to 2023. But when you look at global box office, the number is even better. So the global box office is estimated to have reached $33.9 billion, for 2023, which is a 30% gain over 2022. 
Now, granted, that's still 15% less than 2019, which is obviously pre-pandemic. The fact that there's a 31% increase from last year to this, or should I say from 2022 to 2023, certainly does indicate that people want to get back into the theaters. So there is speculation that this year's box office numbers are not going to be what they should be, mostly because of the strike and all of the productions that got delayed because of that. But obviously we have 12 months to find out. And finally, IMAX is definitely coming back strong. IMAX delivered just over $1 billion in the global box office last year, uh, and that's compared to its highest grossing year ever, which is, of course, 2019, which is $1.1 billion. So it's only 10% off. So the two biggest winners for IMAX were, of course, Oppenheimer, which was shot on IMAX cameras. That brought in $183 million globally. And, of course, the Taylor Swift tour. That also helped to bring IMAX's numbers up. So, 2023, I mean, COVID is still with us. It's not going anywhere. It's stuck here with us. Or should I say we're stuck here with it. But it does look like the box office is, well, returning to whatever this new normal is going to be. But clearly, people are not just sitting at home watching movies on their TVs. Of course, this time of year also brings about all of the various award ceremonies. We've got the National Society of Film Critics, the Critics' Choice Awards, the Screen Actors Guilds Awards, and so forth. The Golden Globe Awards is probably the biggest in January. And, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast for a long time knows that I don't put too much into these award ceremonies. But nonetheless, you know, when you get an award, it's nice to be recognized by people. So the Golden Globes happened this month, and there are two instances that were really, well, cool to see. So Lily Gladstone has become the first indigenous actor ever to win a Golden Globe. This is obviously for her role in Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, although she is not the first uh, indigenous person to be nominated, that one goes to 1994's Lakota Woman, Siege at Wounded Knee, uh, which gave the Best Actress nomination to Irene Bedard. And then Taika Waititi also got one for Jojo Rabbit back in 2020. And he was also nominated again for Reservation Dogs, which was nominated Best Musical or Comedy in 2022. Although uh, Lily Gladstone did say one thing that I honestly did not know. She said that uh, Hollywood used to invent native tongues instead of actually depicting them accurately and authentically, which, I mean, that I kind of knew, but I didn't realize how they did it. She said, I'm so grateful that I can speak even a little bit of my language because in this business, native actors used to speak their lines in English and then the sound mixers would run them backwards to accomplish native languages on camera. And although, so I did some checking, although this wasn't very common, apparently it does, it, it is something that has happened uh, at least as far back as the movie Scouts to the Rescue in 1939. And then what they would also do is they would run the film in reverse so that the, the sound synced up with the video. So... There you go. That's something new. Well, new for me, anyway. Uh, and the other thing for the Golden Globe Awards is that Japanese animation legend Hayao Miyazaki has won his first Golden Globe Award for his latest movie, The Boy and the Heron, at the age of 82. And this also marks the first Golden Globe Award win for a non-English animated feature. So I'm sure that he is very pleased with that, especially considering that he came out of retirement just to make this movie. But of course, the big awards are the Academy Awards, which, okay, whatever. <laughs> Sorry, I, I liken the Academy Awards to the Employee of the Month Awards because it's, you know, people who you work with who are voting for who gets these awards. 
But for whatever reason, everybody makes a big deal out of them. But of course, there is always some level of buzz with the Academy Awards, whether it's because somebody got snubbed that people think shouldn't have been snubbed or somebody got nominated, which was a surprise that, you know, that that person got nominated. This year is no exception. Once again, Lily Gladstone has made Oscar history by becoming the first indigenous woman from America to have been nominated for the Best Actress category. And if she wins, she'll be the first indigenous woman ever to win this category. So the other two were, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, uh, Yalitza Aparicio, I hope I got that, uh, who was indigenous but from Mexico, who was nominated for Roma back in 2018, and Keisha Castle-Hughes, who is a New Zealander of Maori descent, who was nominated for Whale Rider in 2013, but obviously neither of those actually went home with the award. I'm not going to go over the entire list of who was nominated. It's a, a very extensive list. I will have a link to the show notes. That's fine. A link in the show notes. But when it comes to the numbers of the nominations, um, Oppenheimer has come in at number one with a total of 13 nods, followed by Poor Things with a total of 11, 11, 11 nominations, and Barbie coming in with eight nominations. And this is also the first time in Oscar history that two blockbusters opened on the same weekend and have been nominated for the Best Picture category. Some records involving that also involve Martin Scorsese, who now has earned more Oscar nominations than any other living director. So he obviously got another nomination for Killers of the Flower Moon, which gives him 10 Best Director nominations, which surpasses Steven Spielberg. Although Steven Spielberg has won twice, whereas Martin Scorsese has only won once. Now, when it comes to total actor, or to, I'm sorry, total directors, William Wyler still has the record who was nominated 12 times and won three times for films such as 1959's Ben-Hur. And another record goes to composer John Williams, who actually has broken his own record. So he's 91 years old, and he was nominated for the best original score for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So he has beaten his own record as the oldest person ever to be nominated in a competitive Oscar category. And on top of that, he is, uh, he is the most nominated living person with 54 nominations. The only person who beats that is Walt Disney uh, with an overall record of 59 total Oscar nominations. So in total, John Williams has won five Academy Awards, three Emmy Awards, four Golden Globe Awards, and 25 Grammy Awards. Of course, you can't have these awards without the snubs, and some of them in this case were, well, they've caused a little bit of controversy and certainly a, a huge amount of irony. So one of the snubs that seemed to surprise a lot of people was that Leonardo DiCaprio did not get a nomination for his role in Killers of the Flower Moon. The Color Purple's Fantasia did really well at the Golden Globe and BAFTA voters and also got a nomination for a Grammy Award, but got nothing for the Academy. But really, the two biggest burns had to be for Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig for Barbie. Margot Robbie, obviously, who played Barbie, and Greta Gerwig, who was the director of it. Now, why is that ironic? Because Ryan Gosling was nominated for Best Actor for his role in Barbie. So when Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig, now consider this is the biggest moneymaker this year, last year, the biggest moneymaker ever for Warner Brothers. It was nominated for Best Picture, in addition to, what, seven other Academy Awards. Yet Margot Robbie was snubbed for Best Actress. 
and Greta Gerwig was snubbed for Best Director. So uh, clearly, many people in the industry were uh, quick to make statements on that one. So uh, NB- MSNBC host Jennifer Palmieri said, both Gerwig and Robbie ignored. It's still so easy for Hollywood to overlook the and discount artistic contributions of women, even when it's the point of the year's biggest movie. Sports host Joey Wright said, The joke I made to my wife walking out of Barbie, watch Gosling get nominated and Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie get shut out, just happened. TV host Julie Stewart Binks uh, came out with, Greta Gerwig snubbed for Best Director? How is this even possible? Margot Robbie not nominated, but Ryan Gosling is? Did anyone even understand the plot of the... Well, she's because the highest grossing movie of all time. For Warner Brothers, yes. But yes, that that's basically the whole plot of Barbie. And another one that other people noted was that Gerwig was nominated for Best Adaptive Screenplay as well because of, of Barbie. But what was it adapted from? It really should have been an original screenplay. It wasn't adapted from anything beyond the fact that Barbie dolls exist. So the Greta Gerwig snub means that Justine Triet is the sole female directing nod this year for her movie Anatomy of a Fall. And even Ryan Gosling himself came out against this whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he said, I am extremely honored to be nominated by my colleagues alongside such remarkable artists in a year of so many great films. And I never thought I'd be saying this, but I'm also incredibly honored and proud that it's for portraying a plastic doll named Ken. But there is no Ken without Barbie, and there is no Barbie movie without Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie, the two people most responsible for this history-making, globally celebrated film. To say that I'm disappointed that they are not nominated in their respective categories would be an understatement. Their work should be recognized along with the other very deserving nominees. Well, anyway, regardless of what I think, Millions of people around the world love the Academy Awards. They stay up to ridiculous hours to be able to watch them. And you, too, will be able to see them on March 10th. Do you agree with these nominations? Do you think you know, there were snubs or uh, nominations that shouldn't have been done? Well, you know, it's all a matter of opinion, I suppose. But uh, let me know. Podcast at widescreen.org. Of course, can't have this podcast without some release dates um, and also some release date changes and so forth. So, Antoine... Antoine Fuqua's Michael Jackson biopic now has a global release date, so simply called Michael, with his nephew Jafar Jackson playing Michael you know, as the title role. It now has a global release date of April 18th, 2025. The reason why it's going to be that long is because they just started production a few days ago on January 22nd. Obviously, this date can change any time between now and then, so of course I will let you know if I hear anything. Ghostbusters Frozen Empire's release date has been pushed forward by a week. So it was scheduled to be released on March 29th. It's now going to be released on March 22nd. Apparently this is spring break time, and they would like to capitalize on that for another week, which, okay, I can't blame them. With the new Mad Max movie Furiosa coming out on May 24th, uh, filmmaker Wes Ball decided it would be a good idea to move his uh, tentpole Kingdom of the Planets of the uh, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes from that day to two weeks earlier on May 10th. There was no direct competition for the movie on that date, so moving it to there was kind of a no-brainer. Plus, it gives Planet of the Apes uh, some IMAX screens for the first two weeks before Furiosa comes in. 
Uh, the only other movie coming out on the 24th, which I don't really think was uh, going to be any kind of a consideration, uh, is the Garfield movie. Yeah, I don't think that was uh, too much of a problem. Well, it's pretty clear now that a lot of the streaming streaming services that also make their own movies like Amazon, Netflix, and Apple recognize now that there is a benefit to a theatrical release instead of releasing certain movies just on streaming. So, anyway, Wolves is scheduled to hit theaters on September 20th. And the Scarlett Johansson, Channing Tatum movie, Project Artemis, well, that's what it's currently being called. At the, that's it's a working title, apparently. That apparently will come to theaters on July 12th. Interesting on that one that everything I'm reading is saying that it was previously called uh, Project Artemis, but there's no indicator of what the actual name is going to be. But they know it's the previous name. I Go figure. Anyway, both titles will have access to premium large screen formats, while Wolf's <laughs> W-O-L-F-S. It, it, there must be a reason for that, because otherwise it's wolves, not wolves. Anyway, uh, wolves will also have access to IMAX. And finally, Godzilla uh, Godzilla X Kong, The New Empire. Shouldn't that be Godzilla vs. Kong? Whatever. Uh, that was scheduled to open on April 12th. That's now been bumped up a few weeks. That's going to be released into theaters on March 29th. Not surprisingly, there is another Jurassic World movie in the works, and in this case, David Kep, who wrote the original Jurassic Park as well as Jurassic Park The Lost World, is back to do the writing. As to what this new one is going to involve, no one is sure. Uh, all they're saying is that it's going to be launching a new Jurassic era, according to sources, with an all-new storyline which would seem to indicate that the whole Chris Pratt, Bryce da Dallas Howard, saying that whole line is going away. And if that's the case, then chances are the original characters, played by Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, they're probably not going to be involved either, but who knows. Really, none of this should be surprising anyway. Each of the three Jurassic World movies made over a billion dollars each. This thing is a cash cow for Universal. But it'll be a while before we learn anything else, so you're just going to have to wait and see what comes of it. For those of you who like your zombie movies, uh, put this one in the rumor category right now, but apparently... There is going to be a new sequel to Horror Classic 28 Days Later, which is now going to be called 28 Years Later. Danny Boyle, who directed the original one, and Alex Garland, who wrote the original one, apparently are now recruiting for this movie, which is the natural progression from the original 28 Days Later, and then its sequel 28 Weeks Later. Now, apparently, according to this rumor, this new movie is going to launch a new trilogy, which... <laughs> I'm sorry, the natural progression of that is 28 years later, 28 decades later, 28 centuries later. Anyway, Boyle is attached to direct the first of this trilogy. Garland is going to be writing all three. And apparently this is no real surprise because they've been talking about uh, a bunch of sequels for a while now. So we'll see what happens. As soon as I find anything else, I'll let you know. Deadpool 3 has officially ended filming, with Ryan Reynolds putting out a statement in his typical fashion. The suit hides blood. Also sweat. But today, with Deadpool rapping, it's mostly tears. A giant and forever thanks to the cast and crew of our film who battled wind, rain, strikes, and the Hugh Jackman. <laughs> All under the stalwart leadership of Sean Levy. I got to make a movie with my closest pals, and that doesn't happen very often. See you July 26th. But as the filming for one movie ends, another begins. Tron 3 has officially started filming after a very frustrating delay for people who are involved with it. 
So this is going to be the sequel to 2010's Tron Legacy. Yes, 2010. It's been 13 years. 2024. 14 years, John. And this one is going to be called Tron Ares. Now, there was a big question as to whether or not this was ever going to happen in the first place, uh, because Disney had decided they were going to scrap this movie back in 2015. But in 2017, Jared Leto was attached to be in the movie, and that apparently brought back interest in it. And then filming was supposed to get underway in August of last year, but then we had the WGA and the sag after strike, so that put the production on hold. So now director Joachim uh, Roning has confirmed that the movie has finally begun filming, but at this point there is no indication at all whether the previous Tron Legacy stars, uh, Garrett Hedlund and Olivia Wilde, are going to be returning for this one. So who knows what's going to happen? It's currently slated for a December 2025 release date. That can change as things go along, obviously. So, any other information that comes out for it, I will let you know. The Star Trek movie universe is not yet dead. Uh, okay, so Toby Haynes has been tapped by Paramount to direct a new movie that expands on... Uh, well, this is the weird part. This is according to sources, so this part goes in the rumor category. Apparently... Uh, plot details while they're being kept under wraps. This is supposed to be an origin story that takes place decades before the 2009 film. Um, what? Okay, hold on. Anything that happens before the time of the 2009 film happens in the original franchise. Whether it's next, well, actually, that would be the original Star Trek franchise. Anything before that is is part of the original series. 2009's reboot, they even acknowledged in the movie that it was an alternate timeline. So the whole premise of, of the 2009 reboot is that once Spock and the Romulan ship Narada came back in time, that altered the timeline, and that's what created the Kelvin universe. Anything that happens before that point is part of the original series. So, it's an origin story for what? We already have plenty of origin stories. We, we've got, uh, well, hell, the Enterprise TV series it can be considered an, uh, uh, an origin story. It, just, it doesn't make sense. So, it's an origin story for who? For what? That hasn't already been covered. So, I don't know. I am super confused about this one. It's not a Kelvin origin story because we've already seen the Kelvin timeline origin story. It's called the 2009 Star Trek. So yeah, I have no idea where they're going with this. There is no origin story to the Kelvin timeline because the Kelvin timeline is its own origin story. I'm, so I'm, I'm very confused. Anyway, I'm going to be keeping an eye on this one because it's going to be interesting. Actress Glynis Johns has died. Now, you might not recognize the name, but I'm sure you will recognize one particular character that she played, that of Mrs. Banks from Disney's Mary Poppins. An actress of both stage and screen, she started when she made her West End debut back in 1931 at the age of eight in Elmer Rice's Judgment Day, uh, but she didn't hit Broadway stage until 1952. Uh, however, when it comes to Broadway, it was with Night Magic in 1973 that she really became one of Broadway's major stars, having had the song uh, Send in the Clowns by Stephen Sondheim written specifically for her. So old farts like me probably remember that song mostly from the early to mid-1970s when it became a standard on the radio, having been done by people like Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand, and arguably the most popular one by Judy Collins. 
So before her role in Mary Poppins, she also starred in The 49th Parallel, uh, The Magic Bus, Around the World in 80 Days, and even won an, uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1960's The Sundowners. She also had a number of TV credits, including that of Lady Penelope Pea Soup in the original Batman series. But I think for most of us, she will be remembered mostly for her role as the eccentric Winifred Banks in Mary Poppins. Glennis Johns was 100. Actress Cindy Morgan has died. That, might, that name might not sound familiar. She did a lot of TV shows back in the late 1970s, early 1980s with stints on The Love Boat, Chips, The Fall Guy, Falcon Crest, Matlock. Yeah, I know, a lot of you youngsters are like, what are those shows? But many of you might also remember her as Dr. Laura Baines from the original Tron. But I think most people here will recognize her the most as Lacey Underall from 1980's Caddyshack. Cindy Morgan was 69. Multi-award winning actor Tom Wilkinson has died. Wilkinson has been nominated for or has won several awards, including a Best Supporting Actor nomination for his role in 2007's Clayton, opposite George Clooney and Tilda Swinton. He won both Emmy and Golden Globe Awards for his role as Benjamin Franklin in HBO's John Adams miniseries. He was nominated for nine Screen Actors Guild's award, awards, plural John, of which he won twice for his roles in Shakespeare in Love and The Full Monty. And he's also starred in a number of other movies, including Batman Begins, Selma, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Sense and Sensibility, The Patriot, Eternal Sunshine of the, of the Spotless Mind, Black Knight, and a number of others. But he will likely mostly be known for his BAFTA-winning role as Gerald, a former steel mill foreman who joins his fellow unemployed workers in staging a strip show in The Full Monty. Tom Wilkinson was 75. And finally, Norman Jewison has died. Uh, his career has spanned more than four decades. He's also received seven Oscar nominations, three for Best Director for In the Heat of the Night, Fiddler on the Roof, and Moonstruck, and four for Best Picture. So in total, his films have received uh, 46 nominations and 12 Academy Awards. In addition to the three movies that I mentioned, other nominees uh, were A Soldier's Story, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, He's also done other movies, including Agnes of God, Rollerball, Jesus Christ Superstar, and his first movie, which really made it big, which is 1965's The Cincinnati Kid, starring Steve McQueen and Margaret and Edward G. Robinson. He's also credited with boosting the careers of people like Cher, who won an Oscar for his movie Moonstruck, and Lee Grant, who played Mrs. Colbert in The Heat of the Night, who wrote that Norman Jewison is a, is a giant and I am in his debt. He gave me back a career at the end of the blacklist. Uh, a huge-hearted man, a truly unique talent. Nothing I say here can do him justice, but I can say thank you. He also received a number of awards throughout his career, including Best Director at the Berlin Film Festival, uh, BAFTA Awards, a Donatello Award from Italy, and the Genie Award from the Canadian Academy. So in 2010, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Directors Guild of America. He also founded the Canadian Film Center, which is basically the Canadian equivalent to our American Film Institute. And in total, he has amassed an impressive 12 Academy Awards, 4 BAFTA Awards, and 12 Golden Globe Awards. Norman Jewison was 97. Put this one in the rumor category, although let's face it, no one's going to be surprised by this if it turns out to be true. According to rumor, there is a third Top Gun movie in the works. Color me shocked. 
I mean, Top Gun Maverick, <laughs> it only brought in $1.5 billion at the global box office and was credited by Steven Spielberg for getting people back into the theaters. Now, according to this, uh, Maverick director Joe Kaczynski is back on board to direct, and the intent is to reunite Tom Cruise with co-stars Miles Teller and Glenn Powell. I mean, this really is not a surprise, but apparently the uh, this sequel has been quietly in development since late fall. So Paramount, of course, no comment. But if this new Top Gun movie does come into play, don't expect to see it anytime soon. Tom Cruise is currently working on the 8th Mission Impossible movie. That's scheduled to be released in May of 2025, so he's going to be busy with that. And it took several years of development before Maverick finally was, was finished. So who knows what's going to happen, but, you know, at $1.5 billion, you know, <laughs> you knew they were going to have another one whenever they could. We're just going to have to wait to see what happens. This next one also is not much of a surprise with the popularity of the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. A new Star Wars movie is a go with Jon Favreau directing. So apparently the name of this film is going to be The Mandalorian and Grogu, who you probably know better as Baby Yoda. And this is obviously going to be the first Star Wars movie to go into production since The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Sorry, I, I spoke the forbidden words. Anyway, so there was speculation that the Star Wars movie starring Daisy Ridley would be the first one to get out of the gate, but apparently that's been delayed. And it looks like this one is going to be the first one out of the gate. So obviously The Mandalorian launched in November 2019 was a huge show for Disney+. Plus. It was the Star Wars Western that really we needed. So Lucasfilm does not have a specific date for the movie, although there is currently an untitled Star Wars movie set for December 19th, 2025. Might be it, might not. It's possible that that was for the Daisy Ridley movie and they'll give it to this one. Who knows? But as far as we know, there are still the other Star Wars movies, uh, including the one with Daisy Ridley. Uh, another one to be directed by Dave Filioni. And then there's the other one to be handled by James Mangold, which is supposedly even farther away from, from becoming real. So more Star Wars movies are in the works, but it looks like The Mandalorian is going to be the first one to hit the big screen. A couple of new video game movies have been announced. So horror game Until Dawn from Sony is apparently in the works, and filmmaker David F. Sandberg is returning to his horror roots by handling this one. So Until Dawn was released in 2015. It is an interactive horror game that follows eight friends and frenemies who are brought together in a remote mountain retreat uh, with live or die scenarios featuring a mysterious killer, cannibalistic wendigos, mm -hmm, a cable cat, cable cat, seriously? Cable car, Jesus. Oh, my astigmatism, I hate my astigmatism, I hate my astigmatism. Anyway, I could edit that out, but F it. There's an unedited blooper for you. A cable car! <laughs> uh, and a long-ago mining cave that reverberates into the present day, the members of the group must fight through their fear if they hope to make it through the night in one piece. The game proved to be a surprise hit with critics and received numerous Gaming Awards nominations. So, right now, the logline for this is being kept secret. Screen Gems is describing it as an R-rated love letter to the horror genre. Genre? Oh my god. I'm getting tired. And it's supposed to center on an ensemble cast. This is what happens when the brain and the mouth are not in sync. Thank you, ADHD. Uh, there's no word yet on whether this is going to be on the big screen or the little screen. 
but obviously we'll know more as time goes on, and hopefully I'll have my eyes checked by then. The other video game that's coming to the big screen is Bendy and the Ink Machine, which is, yes, a horror video game franchise. And there have been no specific details whatsoever except a photo by the company that made the game that says Bendy is coming to the big screen. And that's all. So at this point, there's no word on if it's going to be animated or if it's going to be a live action adaptation. But really, I mean, you could probably expect to see a lot more of this in the future anyway, especially for horror video games. Particularly when you consider that movies like Five Nights at Freddy's, it had a $20 million budget. It made $290 million at the box office. So if you've never heard of the game, uh, gamers take on a role as a retired animator named Henry Stein, who's driven to return to his abandoned animation studio, which is home to classic cartoons, very reminiscent of Steamboat Willie. So really, the, the video game pays honor to a lot of the old-type animations, but after discovering some major problems within the studio with its ink machine, Henry must fight to escape what becomes a cartoon nightmare. I've seen people play the game. I actually own the game, which is kind of weird for me to say. I actually own a horror game. Yeah, I know, crazy, but it looks cool. I've met the developers at PAX East. The game has a really cool style. I will admit that the art design for the game is actually really cool. And really, it should translate very well to a horror movie. So we'll see what happens. One of my favorite movies from last year is Netflix's Nimona. It, it's, just, it's such a good movie. It's such a freaking good movie. I love the animation style. It's full of humor. It's full of heart. It's got great voice acting. It's, just, it's such a good movie. And now you can read the screenplay if you wish. This is not unusual. A lot of movies that have, have gained any sort of popularity have been releasing their screenplay. It's a really cool way of seeing how screenplays are written. Or if you're looking to be a screenwriter yourself, you can take a look at that and learn from it and develop your own. So if you have not yet seen the movie, I highly recommend it. And if you're interested in reading the screenplay, I will have a link to it in the show notes. One of the upcoming Marvel movies that we've, we've talked about here before is Avengers The Kang Dynasty. Well, that is now going to be renamed. And honestly, who knows what's going to happen? It might be completely rewritten. So actor Jonathan Majors, who played Kang... Uh, was found guilty on charges of assault and harassment after going to trial over domestic violence allegations. So it has since been confirmed that Marvel has released him, he is no longer in the role, and the movie has been retitled to simply, at this point, Avengers 5. So who knows what's going to happen? I doubt they're going to recast the role. They're probably going to rewrite it. Uh, who knows? But the Kang Dynasty has ceased to be. It is no more. It has expired and gone to meet its maker. And if you catch that reference, we can absolutely be friends. David Ayer's The Suicide Squad has long been rumored about trying to get a director's cut for the movie. Uh, I didn't hate the movie. It got a lot of crap. My only argument with that movie was that it really was the Deadshot and Harley Quinn show. They focused a bit too much about that, but for a while... David Ayer has been saying that the movie that was released in theaters is not really the movie that he wanted it to be. And for a while, he's been arguing, just like we had the Snyder cut, uh, there was going to be a David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad, but apparently that is no longer going to happen. So he himself had said that this director's cut would have included more screen time for Jared Leto's Joker. <sighs> Don't do us any favors. Um... A romance between Harley Quinn and Deadshot, uh, more backstory for the characters, confirmed on-screen deaths for others that just disappeared in the theatrical version, 
seems depicting Joker's abusive attitude toward Harley Quinn. Plus, the character of Diablo would have survived the events of the movie. But unfortunately, he says that he is now done talking about the film, saying, I'm done with DC. And when asked again about it, he said, nope, done and done. Very sad. You'll be fine after a good cry. I feel healthier. It's a wound that needs to heal. So uh, he continues saying, nothing about this situation feels good. The studio has no interest in releasing it. It's time to run and not look back. Uh, I don't need to be walking around with a begging bowl. Going to protect my heart and move more. And going to protect my heart more moving forward. So when a fan suggested that uh, it might have been an inside job for Suicide Squad to basically end up not being what he wanted it to be, he replied with, I got sniped on that one JFK style. Ah, so it seems like there's not a lot of good blood between DC and David Ayer. So if you had hopes for a director's cut of Suicide Squad, not going to happen. And finally, you knew this was going to happen because it's happened before, and it will happen again and again and again. So Steamboat Willie, the original Mickey Mouse, is now in the public domain. And of course, horror movie producers are wasting no time whatsoever jumping on that one. So what happened with Winnie the Pooh is happening with Steamboat Willie and, and the original Mickey Mouse. So right now, there is no title for this, but... In this upcoming horror comedy, uh, a sadistic mouse will torment a group of unsuspecting fairy passengers with production to begin in the spring. <laughs> Director Stephen Lamort says that Steamboat Willie has brought joy to generations, but beneath that cheerful exterior lies a potential for pure, unhinged terror. It's a project I've been dreaming of, and I can't wait to unleash this twisted tale on this beloved character to the world. So Now, he says that uh, he has been very closely working with their legal team to try to keep Disney away. Who Disney is going to be very, very protective about Mickey Mouse. But Lamort says, we are doing our due diligence to make sure there's no question or confusion of what we're up to. This is our version of a public domain character. It's a scary thrill ride with heart and humor, probably lots of hearts being shown on screen, based on a character that everybody knows. In this film, the character will not even be called Mickey Mouse. He will go by Steamboat Willie. And finally, I will have a link in the show notes to a trailer for another movie that has already started to get underway called Mickey's Mousetrap. That's the name of it. <laughs> Uh, so the uh, description in this says, uh, as Mickey Mouse enters the public domain, we're excited to unveil the trailer for Jamie Bailey's horror comedy, Mickey's Mousetrap. Uh, the synopsis is, it's Alex's 21st birthday, but she's stuck at an amusement arcade on a late shift, so her friends decide to surprise her, but a masked killer dressed as Mickey Mouse decides to play a game of his own with them, which she must survive. So, I mean, it sounds more like a parody than anything else. But director Jamie Bailey says, we just wanted to have fun with it. Uh, it's Steamboat Willie's Mickey Mouse murdering people. It's ridiculous. We ran with it and had fun with it, and I think it shows. Oh, boy. Okay, so I will have a link to that trailer in the show notes. But, yeah, here it comes. And you could probably get ready for a Mickey Mouse versus Winnie the Pooh movie coming up at some point, too. You know, akin to Freddy versus Jason, that sort of thing. It's coming. I'm calling it. I'm calling it. It's going to happen. Uh, anyway, okay, that'll do it for this episode. <laughs> 
Sorry for it being late. I know I say that every freaking time, and I'm I'm as tired of it as you probably are. But you know what? I'm going to keep on trucking with this podcast as best as I can. You know, if, if life is a highway, God, I'm stuck in a traffic jam. <laughs> Help! Someone get this traffic free flowing, please. Anyway, feel free to follow me on the various social media platforms. Not that I post much that's movie related, but you know, sometimes I do. Uh, it's a uh, you know Instagram. Twitter, not X, Twitter, Blue Sky, Twitch, follow me on Twitch. I stream multiple times a week. Widescreen John on all of those. Everyone, as I say at the end of all of my streams, take care of yourselves, take care of each other because we need a lot of that right now. Thanks for thanks for, for still hanging on to this little teeny tiny podcast that's stuck in a flood of other movie podcasts. I appreciate you being here more than you realize. And I am indeed grateful for every listener that I have, for everyone who watches my streams. This will never be a big podcast. I will never be a very super popular streamer. But you know what? I've got my community, and I'm okay with that. So until next time, toodles! I can pray and trick with a double tongue, but the only fool here is me. I choose the way to go, but the road won't set me free. Cause I wish you'd see me, baby. Save me, I'm going crazy Trying to keep us real Keep us alive This day we'll die tonight And there ain't no exception We shouldn't wait for nothing to wait for Love me in this fable, babe My heart is in your hand Our time is waiting right outside your door And maybe A better day. This podcast, this podcast right here. I have no idea why I'm sounding like a bad commandant clink. Anyway, this podcast is copyright 2024 and is released under the Creative Commons license. Some rights are reserved. The widescreen podcast is a proud member of the Blueberry Network. That's blueberrynoes.com. Theme music is by Poets of the Fall and is used with permission. Please visit their website at poetsofthefall.com. This has been and shall be... Okay, granted, I'm one year closer to death, but, you know, so be it. But this podcast has been a widescreen.org production. I'm an old man.